Hello, and welcome to episode 16. Thank you, as always, for hitting that little triangle to get this show playing. So I guess now the onus is on me to keep you entertained, and that's just what I'm going to try my best to do here. So we're going to continue to revisit some famous, and maybe in some cases, maybe not so famous films from the past and the present. But I've said it before, and I will say it again. Lauren Bacall, she was once quoted as saying, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So you will never hear me use the word old to describe any motion picture that we're talking about here. You can say the same about anything in life, really. I mean, it's a sentiment that works for me. So here in the show, we'll continue to dive into some fun behind-the-scenes facts and sometimes even bring some classic dialogue to the table, like this little nugget from one of today's two featured movies, Fatal Attraction. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. So, I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. I want to kick things off today with a special shout-out to my friend and fellow podcaster, Davey A. We'll be collaborating in the near future, which I'm really excited about. It's going to be great to have twice the energy going and to have some conversations going. We'll be appearing on each other's show, so stay tuned. He also correctly answered the trivia question from the Goonies episode, so he got a personalized meme of the Goonies character Sloth congratulating him. You can find his show on Anchor Podchaser, let's see, CastBox, and Spotify. So, to be candid, I was unfamiliar with CastBox, so thank you, Dave, for introducing something new. Full title of his show is Davey A's I'll Give That 10 Minutes. And yep, that title does include an exclamation point. Davey A 10 Mins, M-I-N-S. He talks about games movies, TV shows, animation, and a whole lot of 80s nostalgia. So check him out on Twitter at DaveyA10Mins. So now's a good time, actually, with that said, to confirm with any of you listening, it does not matter when you listen to an episode. Answer the trivia question from any episode, at any time, anywhere. You will still get the fun memes however you reach out to me. If you emailed me, I'll email back. If you send a message through social media, then that's what I'll use. Interaction is what it's all about, so please do not be shy. Just have fun with it. And you know what? If you get the question wrong, who cares? You'll get the meme and a shout-out anyway. Win-win, right? All right, so we will get to this week's trivia segment later. First, let's introduce officially today's pair of thrillers, 1971's Play Misty for Me, starring Clint Eastwood and Jessica Walter, also directed by Clint Eastwood, by the way. And... 1987's Fatal Attraction, starring Michael Douglas and Glenn Close, directed by Adrian Lyne. Sixteen years apart from each other, but both tread similar ground as far as storyline, and to an extent, the characters also. Um, I had first heard of Play Misty probably around the time that I was in high school, and this was moons ago, but there was a magazine article on Fatal Attraction. Uh, which was weird, because at the time of the article, the movie had already been out for a few years by that point. So this was probably maybe 1990, 89, 90, 91. It was Fangoria magazine. And for those of you who may not know Fangoria, that's a, it's a horror movie publication. I thought that it was no longer published, but I did look it up. Apparently it was relaunched about three years ago under new ownership. But anyway, this was probably, like I said, 89, 90, 91. And there was this article on some of the blood makeup used in Fatal Attraction, and the article made reference to Play Misty as sort of a precursor to Fatal Attraction. I did not actually see Play Misty until much later. For the, for the life of me, I couldn't even tell you how much later it was, but it was, a, it, was a, 
doesn't matter, but it was a long time later. <laughs> anyway, I finally saw Misty on, uh, I think I rented it from a video store. I saw the connections between these two movies. And then, in the year 2000, Will Smith, yeah, that Will Smith, his company, Overbrook Entertainment, they announced plans for a remake of Play Misty for Me. The latest info that I could find in that was from 2006. At that point, it was still in development hell, as Hollywood calls it, so... I have the feeling that it's not going to happen by this point. He had actually gotten the Hand That Rocks the Cradle screenwriters, Amanda Silver and Rick Jaffa, uh, to to write the script. He he would not have been the one to star in the movie. He just would have produced it through his... Well, not just, but he would have produced it through his company. But at this point, I mean, that was latest I saw, like I said, was 2006. So my guess is that you know his ownership of the rights probably lapsed quite a while back. So here we are now in 2021, and Glenn Close, she has been, of course, enjoying a lot of some of her most widespread publicity in a while, thanks to her recent award season triumphs for 2018's The Wife and 2020's Hillbilly Elegy. I know that Glenn Close is not yet an Academy Award winner, but I still will refer to awards season triumphs because they are triumphs for her. So it felt like a good time to revisit both of these movies and to, you know, just maybe reintroduce or maybe introduce them both to any of you. We're going to be following the same format I've used now for a few episodes. There will be a spoiler-free plot setup. Then I will give a spoiler alert as we segue then into behind-the-scenes fun facts. And finally, we will cap off everything with the trivia segment. So get comfortable as we dive headfirst into the spoiler-free plot setup of both movies. 1971. That was the year that Play Misty for me was released. The setting is the California coast. Clint Eastwood. He plays a radio DJ named Dave Gava. He works for a jazz music station. He's one of two disc jockeys who works there. The movie opens with him arriving for his shift. He's relieving his colleague, a guy named Al. No sooner does Dave go on the air when he gets a phone call from a female listener requesting that he play Errol Ghana's jazz piece called Misty. And she says, play Misty for me. Both Dave and his colleague Al recognize the voice as someone who has apparently called before with the exact same request. And so the two of them have some, meaning Dave and Al, they have some banter about how Dave's got a fan and blah, blah, blah. His shift ends and he goes to his favorite, his favorite bar called the Sardine Factory, which his friend Murphy owns. And who is at the bar waiting for him but the female listener? She introduces herself to him as Evelyn Draper, she admits that she was there deliberately at that time, in the hopes of meeting him. He apparently had mentioned this establishment that he hangs out in on the air, so that's how she knew that this is where he frequently goes. They flirt with each other, and he admits to her that there is a woman that he was involved with. Her name was Toby. He still carries a torch for her, but they're currently on a break. Kind of like Ross and Rachel. We're on a break. And long story short... He and Evelyn end up spending the night together. Not long after, Toby, she arrives back in town, and he wants very much to resume their relationship. But, of course, Evelyn's not going to like this. And she makes her feelings known incrementally, <laughs> with more and more, shall we say, aggression. As far as the story goes, my friends, that is all that I'll say. Fatal Attraction 
overall is similar, but there are some significant changes that, that do make a pretty, a pretty huge difference. For one thing, in Fatal Attraction, not only is the protagonist, here it's a guy named Dan Gallagher, played by Michael Douglas, in Fatal Attraction, he's a married man when he hooks up with the other woman. Not only that, but he also has a six-year-old daughter, and that adds not just a few layers of messy to the situation. In fact, Clint Eastwood, he said in a featurette on the Misty DVD, he said, quote, It was actually suggested to do which Fatal Attraction did when they remade the film, or came close to remaking it, was to make him a guy who maybe was married or something. And then I thought, no, because that's obvious there's a big problem there, because he's then out philandering. This way, he doesn't really have any commitments. He's got this girlfriend he'd like to reconcile with, but basically he's a free guy. And how does a free guy get manipulated like that? To me, that's what makes it interesting. End quote. Well, that was the direction that Fatal Attraction ultimately takes. Michael Douglas's Dan Gallagher is a married guy. He's been married for nine years to his wife, Beth. He's a New York City lawyer. Uh, his wife, Beth, is played by Anne Archer, who'd go on to co-star in Patriot Games with Harrison Ford a few years later, 1992, I think it is. And as I said, they have a six-year-old daughter. Her name is Ellen. By the way, the child actress who plays Ellen is the same actress who appears in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation two years later. In 1989, she plays Ruby Sue, uh, Randy Quaid's daughter, who mistakes Chevy Chase as Santa Claus. That's the same actress as Michael Douglas's and Ann Arch's daughter in Fatal Attraction. As Anyway, as Fatal Attraction opens, Dan and Beth, they are going to a work-related party. It's the celebration of the publication of some exercise book through a publishing company that his law firm represents. The author of the book is a guy from Japan, so... You definitely have some dated elements here, because after some brief and really uncomfortable mocking of Asian culture coming from Dan and a colleague of his, that's when the plot of the story really begins to kick in. After a little bit of, uh, you know, cringe-inducing comments, they then notice, from across the room, a woman. And the woman and Dan and his colleague, they all catch each other's eyes, the woman, of course, is Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close. She's an editorial assistant for the publishing firm. So Dan's there like, oh, we do all of your legal work, and his colleague tries to flirt with her, but fails miserably. She walks off, she goes to the bar, Dan joins her at the bar to apologize for his friend's behavior, and... By the way, uh, it's pretty. It's too bad that no one could apologize for the decision that the uh, <laughs> that the hair and makeup people made for the way they made poor Glenn Close style her hair in this scene. It's sort of, it's sort of flipped over the top of her head. It has sort of this wild look to it. Even the director of the movie, Adrian Lyne, said in the DVD commentary he did not want it like that. That it looked too over the top. That she, he said that she looked like Medusa. And anyone under the age of 30 taking a look at it might just chalk it up to 80s fashion. But trust me, I am a Generation Xer. I can confirm. As someone who was around in the 80s, this was not a head do. This was a head don't. So she leaves. He and his wife go home. He has to let the dog out. When he comes back, he's hoping to consummate his relationship with his wife. Uh, sees that the little girl has joined them in bed. And so the wife turns to him, smiles, and says, just for tonight. So... There's not too much in the way of providing some kind of 
rationale, however weak that rationale may be, for his dissatisfaction with his life. Um, in other words, I think the point of go walk the dog, and now the dog is in bed with us, so nothing between us tonight. I'm assuming that that was just meant to sort of establish that he's beginning to feel a little bit restless after nine years of marriage, but there's not a lot of development with that. I suppose that if they put too much more in, it just would have increased to the running time of the film, but a little bit more character development, I think, would have helped, because otherwise <laughs> otherwise he's nothing more than just a one-dimensional scuzzbucket. But uh, cut to a new day. He's at work at a meeting with his publishing firm. And guess who walks in as a last-minute replacement for somebody else who was supposed to be at the meeting? Alex Forrest. You can see his facial reaction when he hears her name. Uh, they're talking about an author of a book that her company just published. The author of the book is facing potential lawsuits that the character she created is based on a politician that she had an affair with. So it doesn't sound like anything too significant to the plot of the movie, but if you think about it, it is kind of a it is kind of a verbal foreshadowing. Here they are in the context of a of a business meeting talking about, you know, extramarital affairs. So Dan picks up a bagel, and he takes a bite out of it, and he gets some cream cheese on his nose, and she notices, and so she non-verbally gestures to him to wipe his nose, and he does, and with a napkin, and that's sort of meant to establish a little bit of flirtation between the two of them, I would guess, and then meeting is over, now we're outside, it's raining, and his umbrella does not work, so something straight out of a, you know, 1940s romantic comedy, she sees him struggling with the umbrella in the rain, of course she's got an umbrella that's functioning perfectly, so she goes over to him, she takes him by the hand, they run off to a restaurant, and then we see the two of them having a conversation over dinner and drinks. And he is telling her about how his mother had asked him to represent her when she divorced his father after 29 years. He does not practice family law. That was his excuse for not representing his mother. But again, I think the purpose of this conversation is to give us some sort of, you know, background context to what his perception of marriage and lifelong commitment actually is. So, you know, if he grew up with that shaky role model, then, you know, because he was talking about how his father was a jerkwad, and I don't know, I think it's supposed to establish that. Again, that's just my assumption. But he's able to have dinner with her because his wife, Beth, and their daughter, Ellen, they're away in the country with her parents, with Beth's parents for the weekend. And he tells Alex this, and Alex looks at him coyly and gives him a smile and says with a smirk, and here you are being a naughty boy. And she says, we were, we were attracted to, the, uh, to each other at the party, that was obvious. And you're alone for the night, and that's also obvious. And they tell each other that, yes, they can be discreet. And then they go someplace more comfortable. <laughs> and then they, you know, and then the affair kicks off from there. So he then arrives home after everything. He gets a message on the answer machine from his wife. You can see the guilt on his face. She says, we're actually going to be in the country for one more day, his wife says on the answer machine message. That's one more day with Alex. And so, you know, you have more of Dan and Alex, you know, connecting in their own way. And she begins to verbally show more and more how clingy she actually is. She says, I'd like to see you again. And he tries to break it off with her. He says, it's not possible. I think you're terrific, but I'm married. What can I say? And at first, she smiles and says, oh, just my luck. 
and then of course they sleep together again and that is when things become a bit more <laughs> a bit more uncomfortable she's dominantly leaning over him she gets verbally and physically aggressive a pretty unnerving scene follows which i am not going to say anything about other than it's one of many cherries on this psychological thriller Sunday. More, more and more plot events uh, do begin to unfold, not the least of which is a brief appearance by Fred Gwynn, Herman Munster himself, the man, the legend, the judge, and my cousin Vinny. Any minute you expect to hear him say, what is a ute? Always good to see Freddy, but uh, that's neither here nor there as far as the story goes. So that's all I'm going to tell you. Everything I mentioned about Fatal Attraction, all of that occurs in the first... 30 minutes of the film or so, so again, spoiler-free. But here is where I do say, now we're going to begin to talk about the two films, how they're connected, behind-the-scenes behind the scenes information. So in both, there's the spurned, rejected lover who becomes so fixated on what or who they cannot have that they lose all sense of reality, if they ever really had a sense of reality to begin with. So there is a lot to be said, and that has been said, there is a lot that has been said over the years, controversies, the portrayal of single career women, women for example, uh, depictions of mental illness, that kind of thing. But let's save all of that for this next segment, which is the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So, in this segment, we will begin with a friendly spoiler warning. Proceed from here at your own discretion, because from this point on, details from the movies, including the endings, will ensue. So, herein, there be spoilers. And if you do hit pause to revisit either movie or both of them, certainly go watch them. Hope you enjoy, save me some popcorn, and then don't forget to come back afterwards, of course, to finish this. <laughs> so, we'll begin with Play Misty for me. Production began on September 15th, 1970, in Carmel, California. It was actually shot in real houses and in the middle of an actual jazz festival. There's a scene that has a jazz festival taking place. That was a real festival going on that was not set up for the movie. Four and a half weeks of filming. They came in two and a half days under schedule. The production costs, the tally, came to just under $800,000. And although I just gave you that information, I officially now say to you, here we begin the fun facts. Five fun facts to share with you. Number five. Clint Eastwood had known a writer by the name of Joe Himes, J-O, Joe Himes, for many years. She was a legal secretary who wanted to be a writer. And this was in the days when he was a struggling actor. And he would say, yeah, and someday I'm going to be an actor. So the two of them would talk about their aspirations. And years later, you know, he's now an established star. He's done his spaghetti westerns. He's done the TV. And he came up with, I'm sorry, Joe Himes came up with the treatment for Play Misty for Me. She showed it to him. He liked, as he put it, the Hitchcockian flavor of the story, very much like Hitchcock in the same vein, the thriller aspect. But he also really liked the realness, you know, the themes of commitments and misinterpretations of commitments that go on all the time, he said. According to Eastwood, Himes had a female friend who was a stalker type. She went around and harassed a person she knew only slightly. He said, and I quote, it was sort of a great statement on stalking, end quote, meaning the screenplay. No one thought much about stalking in those days in 1970. He said, that's something I hadn't seen in suspense films in general, so I optioned the treatment from her. And the actual screenplay eventually was co-written by Joe Himes and Dean Reisner. Fun fact number four, actress Jessica Walter, who plays the disturbed Evelyn. 
She said, and I'm just, I was mostly surprised when I met Clint for the first time because he was totally un-movie star-like. Anyone who knows him will tell you he's very laid back, very quiet, soft-spoken. I was very impressed with him at the first meeting I had with him. It was a long meeting, and he was drinking carrot juice. This was before health foods were really popular. I thought, oh my god. He offered me some, and of course I politely said, no thanks. But I liked him immediately. But that brings us to my... This is me talking now. <laughs> End quote. Now it's me talking. That brings us to my personal favorite shot in the entire film. She wakes up from a nightmare that she has after a suicide attempt. And she is tearfully clinging to him and leaning into him on the bed as he's got his hand on her shoulder and he's, he's holding her. The camera just goes into him. It slowly zooms in to him. And you see him and he's trapped. He looks terrified and shocked and afraid, dismayed even. It's a slow zoom in on his face. And Eastwood said that's where, at that point in the story, that's where she is using every tool. She has got him completely under her thumb now. And then the camera zooms out. We pull back and pull back and pull back, and the whole idea was he's a trapped animal. He cannot do anything. And as the camera is zooming out, it's much darker out. It, you know, we're now going well into the night. So the camera zooms out from his face, and instead of looking dismayed and terrified, at this point he is now looking very angry and agitated. As far as the, from a technical standpoint, the shot is unbelievably beautiful. I mean, the content, of course, is disturbing as hell, but from a technical standpoint, it is a masterclass in cinematography and in editing. Number three, actress Donna Mills, who plays Toby. As far as her professional uh, experience before she did this movie, she had done a soap opera for three years. She had wanted to leave. They wanted her to stay, but she left. She did a nighttime TV episode of a detective show called Dan August, starring Burt Reynolds and Norman Fell. And Norman Fell is probably best known for playing Mr. Roper in the TV comedy series Three's Company. So she did this guest appearance on this show called Dan August. That show was only on for a year, I think. Two weeks after that guest appearance, her agent called and said, you got a movie with Clint Eastwood. And she said, wait a minute, what? <laughs> uh, Burt Reynolds had apparently shown Eastwood the dailies because he was very impressed with her performance. So Clint Eastwood, I guess, hired her right from that. She never met him. She never read for him. She never auditioned. She never tested. Nothing. So she finished her soap opera, she said, on a Friday. She then went out to Universal. She did wardrobe fittings on the Saturday and the Sunday, and they began filming the movie on the Monday. That Sunday night, the night before the production began, she met Eastwood for the first time in a bar just to say hello. She met Jessica Walter the second or third day of shooting, and this is where it gets really crazy, in a good way. She and Jessica Walter, in real life, became really good friends. In fact, Jessica Walter offered her her guest house to live in because she did not have a place to stay. So, you know, she she moved her into my, she moved me into her house basically is what she said. Off so off screen, they're running around together and seeing the sights of Carmel, which is where the movie was shot. And on the screen, <laughs> you know, you have Walter, you know, threatening her with this huge pair of scissors. She's got this honking pair of scissors, like you know, the blades right to her eyeballs, and she's cutting off her hair. Of course, I was wearing a wig for that scene, but. I would imagine it was still scary because the scissors were huge and, you know, they were held pretty close to her face. So, so, uh, <laughs> effectively done scene. Okay. Number two, 
Bef okay, this one is nuts. Before ultimately buying the song Misty from Errol Ghana for $25,000, Universal Studios actually suggested to Eastwood, hey, how about using a song that we own so that we don't have to pay the rights, you know, cut some costs there. How about Strangers in the Night? And Clint Eastwood apparently replied, what do you mean, like play Strangers in the Night for me? And they said, well, at the end of the song, he sings Scooby-Dooby-Doo, so how about play Scooby-Dooby-Doo? <laughs> True story. And then Eastwood said, this conversation's done. <laughs> so... Good judgment call there in his part. And number one, the original ending. In the original ending, that detective is stabbed by Evelyn, as he is in the movie. In the movie, he's killed. But in the original ending, he does not die. He conveniently shoots her, and that's the end of it. And she falls to the floor beside him as he pulls himself up to a sitting position, meaning, you know, Eastwood's character. But Eastwood said, you know, we, we need something bigger. So they rented a house on a cliff down in the highlands, uh, south of Carmel. The cliff and her and the sea and, you know, playing the song Misty. Much more dynamic, he thought. And he was right than her just lying on the floor. So as far as how they filmed that whole climactic sequence, it was a stunt woman that took the punch from him and went down a little ways. Of course, it was a dummy that went down the cliff. And for the shot of her, of Evelyn, lying on her back in the Pacific Ocean, all over those rocks, 30 degree, wa uh, 30 degree water, uh, Fahrenheit, that was Jessica Walter lying, no, lying on her back in the water. And the aerial shot zooming out just as the end credits begin to roll. So that is a case of suffering for your act. But speaking of suffering, <laughs> let's pivot towards the 1987 film that shows a woman scorned, a cheating husband getting the quasi-happy ending, and that nauseating scene involving an empty bunny crate in the backyard. I already mentioned my personal favorite show, I'm sorry, my personal favorite shot from Misty, and I do have one from Fatal Attraction as well. At one point, Dan returns to his office, and lo, there is Alex, and she at this point is beginning to threaten him and harass him, and he has pictures of him with his wife and his daughter prominently placed in the frame of the film. Like, they're all framed, like, all over the desk and his bookcases, and they're at the forefront of the frame. You have Glenn Close off to one side and these framed pictures of him with his family on the other side. There's a French phrase in film circles, mise-en-scene, which means it literally translates to put in the scene or put into the scene. It's all of the visual elements of every frame of film, and this is a perfect example of when they really do it right. I mean, having all these visual, all of these nonverbal reminders of the life that he wants to hang on to, the one that he's choosing, were it not for Alex continuously, you know, showing up unexpected and, you know, all belligerent and all threatening. So, she offers to take him to a performance of Madame Butterfly, no strings attached, she says. He declines, and my other favorite shot from this movie, she does not go to the concert either. Instead, she puts on the soundtrack, and the two tickets, they're left in front of the stereo, and she's just sitting there on the floor, turning, she, she's holding the, the switch in her hand, and she's just turning the light, the, the floor lamp, on and off and on and off, just tears in her eyes, staring off into space. Meanwhile, all of that is intercut with him and his wife and another couple. They're all bowling together, and they're laughing and joking and having a great time, and that goes back, that cuts back and forth with her with tears in her eyes, looking all forlorn and dejected, or should I say rejected. It's, for me anyway, a very 
it's a morbidly fascinating glimpse inside this disturbed woman's soul. But it's also, and I will use the word masterful, it's also masterful editing and acting. Again, I'm a big fan of zooms, if they're done right. They can be overdone, but here and in Misty, they work really well. The slow zoom in on her, on her tear-stained face, as she's just sitting there, you know, alone, flicking the lamp switch on and off and on and off. It's, it's pitiful, is what it is. But I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent. So here we go with five behind-the-scenes fun facts about Fatal Attraction. Number five, it was adapted into a stage play. That opened in London's West End in 2014 at the Theatre Royal Haymarket. It was the film's original screenwriter, James Dearden, who tailored it for the stage. The play ran for, I think it was 15 weeks. Good ticket sales, pretty bad reviews. And I, the only name from the cast that I recognized was the actress who plays Beth the Wife, Kristen Davis, from Sex and the City. So I thought that was a pretty interesting casting choice. Number four. According to Adrian Lyne in the director commentary of Fatal Attraction, the movie was filmed, or Michael Douglas's The Gallagher Family, their apartment was the same apartment used in the Kim Basinger film Nine and a Half Weeks. They had tried to find another apartment, but apparently didn't. Number three, Fatal Attraction uh, was adapted by James Dearden. The screenplay was adapted from his own short film called Diversion which was shown on British TV in 1980. It was about 50, yeah, about 50 minutes long, just under an hour. Unfortunately, it was not anything that people apparently tuned in to watch, let alone remember, but once he adapted his story into a feature-length motion picture, we got a six-time Oscar nominee. So he made the short film, he wrote the screenplay for the feature film, then he adapted it for the stage. Number two. This one's a bit disturbing. Uh, the phrase bunny boiler, <laughs> bunny boiler, it is actually a part of the lexicon. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean here. It's probably the most disturbing scene in the movie, at least I thought it was. Alex boils the pet bunny of Dan's poor daughter, Ellen. The phrase bunny boiler is listed in Urban Dictionary and on the UK site phrases.org. Urban Dictionary defines it as, and I quote, after a relationship breakup, the person who wants some kind of revenge, like stalking or harassment, end quote. And the UK site, phrases.org, says, quote, an obsessive and dangerous female in pursuit of a lover who has spurned her, end quote. So uh, there are elements of misogyny in <laughs> that term. Let's just put it this way. I myself would not use that term. Uh, Glenn Close herself was uneasy about the scene. She told Oprah Winfrey, she said, the only thing that bothered me was the rabbit. I thought it was over the top. And then fun fact number one, the knife. The knife that Alex uses to attack Dan uh, at the end of the movie. It was actually made out of cardboard. And in 2014, Glenn Close told Vanity Fair that she actually still has it. She framed it. It's hanging in her kitchen. She says, it's all an illusion. It's a cardboard prop. It's a work of art. And she said, and it's nice for our guests to see it. It lets them know they can't stay forever. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Word to the wise, do not wear out your welcome if you are ever a dinner guest of Glenn Close. Okay, time to head over to the final segment of the show, Trivia Time. Last time, we mentioned child actor Haley Joel Osment and his Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for The Sixth Sense. He joined the small list of child actors who 
find themselves shortlisted come Oscar season. Before him, we had Mary Badhand for To Kill a Mockingbird, Linda Blair for The Exorcist, Justin Henry for Kramer vs. Kramer. After him, we had Kevazani Wallace for Beasts of the Southern Wild, Abigail Breslin for Little Miss Sunshine. I know that I'm missing some, but the question last time was, who won the 1999 Best Supporting Actor Academy Award over Haley Joel Osment? And that would have been Michael Caine. Michael Caine, who took the prize for his performance in The Cider House Rules with a pre-Spider-Man Tobey Maguire. And this time, I am excited to announce that we have not one, but two return winners. First, we have Mary C. Great to hear from you again, Mary. How you doing? Personalized meme coming your way. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. And second, we have Stu and Al from the Stu and Al Pod, a comedy podcast that I first came across back in December of last year. These guys put out about two episodes a month. They have regular comedy segments. They banter. They laugh. They do impressions. Check them out as well. Stu and Al Pod. So your meme is off and running your way too, guys. And here is this week's trivia question. The same year as Fatal Attraction. Michael Douglas headlined another well-known product of the 80s. He won the Best Leading Actor Oscar for an Oliver Stone movie where he plays Gordon Gecko and delivers dialogue forever synonymous with 80s-era capitalism when he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, greed is good. Name that movie. What is that movie? Send your answers on over. And as always, if you do have any follow-up questions or comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Play Misty for Me, Fatal Attraction, any movie that I have or have not yet talked about, just simply hit me up on my socials. On Twitter, you'll find me at FilmBuff1974. On Facebook, join the, uh, the public film group Silver Screeners. Instagram, you'll find me at FrankMendoza1974. Or you can simply email me at FrankMendoza at Yahoo.com. And don't forget, my last name is spelled with an A and an S. I'd love to hear which thriller worked for you more, or if you have not seen either of them, or if you've only seen one of them. I'd be curious to hear that too. And thank you to everyone who voted in the poll for who you thought was a more chilling character. Jessica Walter as Evelyn, or Glenn Close as Alex. And after tallying up everything from Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I gotta admit, it was a pretty tight race. But, but Glenn Close has the edge and emerges on top by, get this, only two more votes than Jessica Walter. As for the feedback that came across the internet, some of the comments that came in, I loved to read them all. Paula B. says, They were both great, but Glenn Close was better in my eyes. Mary C. says, it's a shame Glenn Close has never won an Oscar, but Jessica Walter was great also. Edward R. says, oh, Glenn Close, she scared the hell out of me. So thank you all for bringing that to the table. I genuinely appreciate the engagement, and I would love to keep hearing from you. Because again, for real, I love hearing from people, listeners, fellow podcasters, movie fans, musicians, whoever you may be. And that wraps up episode 16. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give the show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts, that does help to increase the show's visibility and boost the algorithms. Or if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be great as well. Thank you for joining. Rock on. And as always, I'm Frank. And until next time, keep on screening. See ya.